in the Ides of March for the cause of freedom. Because only a few exist in the world, the Brutus Denarius, which is the size of a modern American dime, would probably be valued at more than $100,000. But a nearest Asturias could be had today for as little as $500. More common, but nevertheless ancient, historic coins minted by the Romans, Greeks, or Egyptians can be bought for as little as $10 apiece. Think about it. A coin once clutched in the hands of the people who built the Colosseum or the Parthenon, a truly beautiful work of art, is yours for the price of a hamburger, fries, and a Coke. And unlike the lunch, it will be around and might even increase in value year after year after year. If the beauty and material value of the coins aren't enough to excite your imagination, then consider one last romantic fact. Almost every ancient coin has its own story, which almost certainly includes a bit of skullduggery. It is likely that most of the ancient coins in private hands today were literally dug out of the ground somewhere in Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. Indeed, untold numbers of coins remain buried in those regions, left by those who used the earth as their bank vault and died without telling a soul where their wealth was hidden. History is filled with accounts of people inadvertently finding such treasures. The largest hoard ever discovered was found by children playing in a pasture near Marseille in 1366, who found some glinting silver in a small hole. As they scraped to the sides of the hole with their hands, coins fell to the bottom. The hole became a pit, and still the coins rained down. Reports from the era recall that 20 mules were needed to carry the more than 4 million coins from the site. They were eventually melted into silver bullion. Even today, though most countries ban the practice, prospectors quietly search for such holes of gold, and they continue to find them. The coins are sold over and over again and mingled with others until they are part of the legitimate marketplace. It may have happened six centuries ago or last week. Either way, if you look hard enough into the story of every coin, you'll find an Indiana Jones. It lends a certain romance to the hobby. I first saw an ancient coin and began to learn how to profit by trading them when I was about 14 years old. I had a job as a clerk in a small coin and stamp shop in the town where I grew up, a Los Angeles suburb called Arcadia. Coins of the World, etc., occupied a storefront in a drab strip mall on Baldwin Avenue. The place had a worn linoleum floor, fluorescent lighting, and a couple of long glass display cases, smelled of cigarette smoke, and beer, and body odor. My boss was the owner, Ed Walthall. When I first started working for him, Ed was in his early 60s. Stout and bald with a scraggly beard, Ed was a chain-smoking, hard-drinking bachelor who wore torn and mismatched clothes and bathed only on Saturday nights. He was so paranoid that he carried a gun with him at all times. But he was also kind to me and offered more respect and attention than any man I had met up to that point in my life, including my father. Although Ed's business was concerned mainly with American coins, I was fascinated by the older stuff from ancient Greece and Rome. After a while, he was happy to let me buy and sell a few of these items in exchange for minding the place when he went across the avenue for a long, beer-soaked lunch at a bowling alley. One day, while Ed was on his break, a military veteran came in with a metal ammunition box the size of today's desktop computers. It was filled with trays of ancient coins. The man, who was somewhere between 40 and 50 years old, said he had acquired them in Egypt, where he had paid $2,000 for them all. Now he was having trouble getting rid of them. I took out one tray, and I saw bronzes struck in Egypt and some large Greek drachmas. One coin was truly rare. It had been minted by Constantine the Great, after he had converted to Christianity. That single tray was worth $3,000, and there were several more trays. The seller was willing to take 3000 for the whole lot, if I could pay him soon. I'll talk to my boss, I said. 
There's got to be something we can do. He left his phone number and took the coins away. Ed said no, explaining that ancient coins were hard to sell, and $3,000 was much more money than he'd ever spent on one purchase. But the way I saw it, he just lacked the imagination to see the opportunity in that metal box. That night I pleaded with my mother and father, but they were also unmoved. I went to bed thinking about my last option, the one person in the world who always made me feel loved and accepted, my grandmother. The next day I took a bus across Los Angeles to Mar Vista and my grandmother's little two-bedroom cottage. Though I had failed with Ed and my parents, those experiences taught me something. It's not easy to understand ancient coins and their value. With my grandmother I tried a simpler approach. I told her the story of how the coins had come to me, making sure to share my passion for the history they represented and my excitement over the possibility for profit. When I finished, I could see she had listened carefully. All right, she said. I'll write you a check. A few days later, the coins were mine. As I carefully examined and cataloged them, I realized their value was even higher than I first believed. I took a small number of the best to a couple of L.A.'s more prominent coin dealers who bought them right away. This gave me more than enough money to repay my grandmother. When I tried to add interest to the payment, she refused it. Eventually, I sold all the coins. My best guess is that I made more than $10,000 in profit, and it was all because I had been able to talk my way into the deal. Once I realized the depth and breadth of the obscure world of ancient coins, I read everything I could find, devouring even the most arcane catalogs of information word for word. I discovered that, at their most basic, ancient coins were, like modern money, instruments of exchange. They elevated commerce from simple bartering, my goat for your four chickens, to an orderly process. The first coins were minted in the 7th century B.C. in Greek states, in what is now Turkey. They were lumps of electrum, a soft local metal, stamped on one side with simple designs. Minting technology and craftsmanship improved steadily. By 290 B.C., a coin from Rhodes, for example, would bear the face of the sun god Helios, the god that was depicted by the Colossus of Rhodes. On the reverse of the coin was a rose, the flower for which the island was named. In Athens, all of the coins had, on their obverse side, the goddess Athena. The reverse side was typically an owl, the symbol of wisdom. Almost anyone who looks at these coins and runs a finger over their images is filled with a sense of awe. Here's a pegasus, a gorgon, a lion's head. These are the images ancient people lived with every day. Though the art is breathtaking, in the time when they were merely money, an ancient coin's value depended on its weight and metal. The most valuable pieces were gold and silver. Logically enough, they were minted to be roughly the same weight and size from place to place. Thus, a traveler from one Greek city or state would be able to make purchases in another, though he carried only the coins from home. This kind of exchange was possible even if the two states were at war. Nothing got in the way of money and commerce. Precious metals such as gold and silver increase the coin's value to modern collectors, but a coin's meaning, the story it tells, and its rarity are far more important. Every collector, whether he or she accumulates coins, cars, or railroad cabooses, wants the items that are hardest to get and those that have true historical significance. This is why a newspaper from December 8, 1941, reporting the Pearl Harbor attack, is far more valuable than the one published the day before. Of course, the smaller the number of any item, the greater its value. The famous misprinted inverted Jenny stamp of 1918, showing a Curtis biplane upside down, is worth $100,000 because only 100 exist in the world. I once owned a block of four Jenny stamps, which today would fetch a half a million dollars at auction. Historical significance and rarity fuel a collector's instinct for hunting down certain prizes. As a beginner, I couldn't hope to capture the rarest coins, 
Even in the 60s, they were valued as high as $100,000 apiece, so instead, I tried to build a meaningful collection. I was most fascinated by the Romans, so I sought to have at least one image of as many of the emperors, their wives, and their children as I could acquire. I was a rather obsessed and probably odd young man, intently pursuing Agrippa, Trajan, and Vespasian the way other boys chase dates with cheerleaders. After obtaining a coin, I didn't put it on display or gaze at it for days, but I did feel good, as if a terrible itch had finally been scratched. With my collection, I felt a sense of order, control, even power. There's one other significant thing about collecting. It's addictive. I mean that it can become for some as consuming and ultimately out of control as a drug habit. Of course, the out-of-control part doesn't happen for a long time. First, you are swept away by your new passion. You find yourself thinking about it all the time. For me, it was a matter of constantly looking for that next acquisition and maneuvering to get it. For someone with a true collector spirit, the whole matter of pursuing and then holding new items is profoundly urgent. If I came across a coin that was rare, I immediately began to worry that if I didn't grab it, someone else would, and it would be off the market. These weren't things you could order like a pair of shoes. They appeared, and then they were gone. I first felt the drive to have one such special coin when I was 15 years old and saw one that honored an emperor with the unfortunate name of Pupianus. Coins of Pupianus, this one is Cistercius, are prized because he was an emperor for less than a year and therefore minted relatively few coins of any denomination. The one that caught my eye was offered for sale by Wayne Phillips, a dealer in Los Angeles with far more ancient coins than were held by my old friend Ed Walthall. The Cistercius showed the emperor with a great long beard. The coin was a bit worn, with a dark brown patina, and was priced at $400. At age 15, I could have done a lot with $400. My friends would have bought many box or saved it for a car. But there was nothing else I wanted, nothing else that mattered. Wayne agreed to let me purchase it over time, with weekly payments. I took another job as a stock boy at a liquor store to scrape up the cash. Once I took possession of that treasure, I hid it away from my mother, my father, and my sister. I didn't think they would understand its value or why I spent so much money on it. Money is a big problem for most serious collectors. It was for me. So like many addicts, I became a dealer, a pusher of sorts, who tried to get others hooked so that I could sell them a supply and fund my own ever-growing habit. None of this was done consciously. In fact, even now, I see the ordinary collecting of ancient coins as a positive educational activity. My fascination with them as art objects was real, and the excitement I showed as I began to sell them to others was genuine. I loved them. I thought everyone else should love them, too. As a teenager in Sleepy Arcadia, I was a little fish among ancient coin collectors, but we all swam in a very small pond. In the mid-1960s, there were probably just a few hundred people in California who cared about centuries-old dinars, drachmas, and sesterci. All the dealers I bought from, save one, handled the ancient coins only as a sideline. They were far more interested in American coins, which had to be a hundred times more popular. The exception was Joel Malter, a high school teacher in the beach community of Venice, who was also the most respected ancient coin expert in Southern California. Everyone who was interested in coins knew of Joel Malter. His knowledge of the field was deep, and even though he operated part-time out of his garage, he was the most active trader around. It was inevitable that once I began looking for coins, I would hop a bus to Venice to see a stock. It was also natural of me to turn to Joel to sell many of the coins I had acquired, including those that came into Coins of the World, etc., in that ammo box. More than six feet tall, with a kind face and friendly blue eyes, Joel must have been a very popular teacher. He readily welcomed my interest and brought me into his life almost as if I were his son. 
My own family was very introverted. My father was a single-minded scientist who had very little time for me and offered absolutely no encouragement to me. My mother, chronically ill with arthritis her entire life, was fragile. My only sibling was my sister, Patty, who was a full eight years younger than I. Because of the age difference, we were not particularly close. In contrast with my family, the Malters seemed to be happy and full of life. Joel's wife, Adele, was very beautiful and lively. His son, Michael, was about five years younger than me. He was energetic, funny, all boy. I love the Malters, and I think they love me back. Joel was certainly pleased, maybe even delighted by my interest in the ancient world and its artifacts. These weren't baseball cards we were dealing with, so how many teenagers were around to share his obsession? He guided my education in the field, exposing me to ever more sophisticated books and other materials. One of the first things I bought from Joel was the basic guidebook to Roman coins, Roman Coins and Their Values by David Sear, an expert from England. I devoured that book and eagerly sought others. I remember the day that Joel excitedly told me, I think I'm getting a set of Cohen for you. Cohen, a 19th century Frenchman, had produced an eight-volume set of books that was deemed to be the definitive source of information on the history and relative value of ancient coins. The set cost a couple hundred dollars, but I gladly paid it. Using my high school French, I poured over my volumes of Cohen, absorbing dates, descriptions, and values, the way other boys taken batting averages and team records. In retrospect, I can see that we were probably geeks of a sort, but we didn't care. We were endlessly fascinated by the coins and what they represented. We could see that unlike other hobbies, ancient coins represented a real opportunity to make money. This became very clear to me when Joel moved from Venice to Encino and into a bigger, fancier home with a swimming pool. He quit teaching and began working full-time as a coin dealer, opening an office on Ventura Boulevard. His business boomed. A clever strategy helped Joel sell coins all over the country and eventually all over the world by mail order. His main sales tool was a rudimentary catalog listing the coins he had to sell with pictures of some of them. When an individual customer ordered from the list, Joel would send along a few selected coins that were tailored to that person's interests. If someone ordered a coin of Nero, for example, he would send something depicting Nero's wife. He'd add a note saying, I think you might like this one also. If you want to keep it, send payment. If not, just return it. Joel's clients came from every walk of life. His intuition about them was remarkably good. He knew that once someone had a new, unexpected coin in his hands, it was a lot easier for him to write a check than to let go of his new possession. It was like one of those old record clubs, except better, because the selections Joel mailed out were tailored to fit. Back at Coins of the World, etc., I tried to copy Joel's methods. If a customer was Italian-American, or Jewish, or Christian, I talked to them about coins that connected with their heritage or interests. Although I didn't recognize it at the time, it's clear to me now that I had an uncanny ability to...